The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Karl Marx was born 200 years ago this year in Trier, a Rhineland city in what was then Prussia. Within decades of his death, a third of the world's population lived under governments that cited Marx as one of their intellectual forebearers. But who was Karl Marx? How did he develop his views? How did he become so influential? And how did his writings come to influence literature? We'll discuss all that and more with our friend Mike Palindrome today on The History of Literature. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the program. Karl Marx. It's hard to imagine a bigger name than that. But let's start with some feedback from listener Maxime, who wrote to us from Manila. He was inspired to comment after hearing our recent episode with Sarah Bird, in which we talked about the great Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Quote, thanks for the episode, Jack. I loved it very much and re-listened to it with my wife in the car to share with her my excitement knowing how Gabo came about with Cien Mil Años de Soledad. I am your avid fan, Jack. I told my wife how you have inspired me to write my blogs about the intersection of travel and literature. Every day, to make my driving bearable due to Manila's unforgiving traffic, I listened to your podcast. Thank you so much for this very accessible and excellent discussion on literary works. End quote. Thank you, Maxime. I love hearing about these experiences, these where's and when's of your listening experience, and hearing what you did afterward. Re-listening with your wife and sharing your excitement with her. I know that feeling well, just as I also know all about the unforgiving traffic in Manila. I'm glad to be with you on the physical part of your journey, helping to pass the time and keep things as sane as possible. And I'm glad to be with you on the spiritual part of your journey as well, as you dream about Gabo and your own writing and tell your wife about your excitement. It's a great example of one of the things I love most about literature, how it can inspire us to do great things and to be great people, and it can make us humble and at the same time build us into superhuman creatures, or at least feel that way for a little while. And it can bring us all together. You, your wife, me, Sarah Bird, and Gabo. We're all in it together. One of the other things I love about literature, as longtime listeners have probably guessed, is when it exposes things that are right under our noses, but that we cannot really see. I say I love that about literature, but it's what I love about history, and philosophy, and economics, and religion, and ideas. I love thinking about these big shifting ideas, these enormous and powerful forces. Think of it this way. You're outside on a nice spring day. If a bird should happen to land near you, you might stare at the bird. You might really zero in on that bird. You've never seen a bird so beautiful before. You might even draw the bird, name all of its features, capture the bird and put it in a cage and look at it every day until you know every feather, every splash of color, every movement, every twitch. You truly know that bird. The bird is yours. And meanwhile, here's what you didn't capture. The sky. You didn't put the sky in the cage. The sky was even bigger than the bird, right? Even more important, it gave you the bird. And yet you missed it. You didn't think twice about the sky when you grabbed the bird. And here's what's fascinating about our subject today, Karl Marx. He said, take a look at the sky. Don't just fixate on the tiny, the small. Look at the huge. Don't zero in on the factory down the road. Think about money and how it works, human relationships, the way society is organized. You might say, why do I have to work this hard for so little money? Why do those around me make more or less? Who put this in place? Will it ever change? That's the kind of big-picture question that Marx tried to address. And then he himself became something like that, something so big and monumental, he's hard to parse out. His ideas are as big and yet as hard to see as the sky. 
Is he relegated to history? How can he be? He's changed it. For better or worse, the impact of his writings transformed the world, and his legacy is still with us today. His shadow is a shadow like few figures in history have ever cast. For people who affected us solely with their words, he almost stands alone. When he died, 11 people attended his funeral. 11. 50 years later, his ideas were as influential as almost any historical figure. As far as influence, comparable impact, you'd have to reach for names like Plato and Aristotle, Newton and Darwin and Einstein. His biographer Peter Singer said he's best understood as a secular deity, that to understand the power that Marx exerted over the 20th century, we would need to compare him with major religious figures like Jesus or Mohammed. Countries like the Soviet Union followed his principles, or at least their version of them. Leaders like Hitler and Mussolini came to power disavowing Marxism. The Cold War was sort of a global referendum on Marxism, two superpowers at a standoff, staring each other down, one saying that Marx was right, one saying that he was wrong. Wars broke out, civil wars as well as conflicts like Vietnam, with advocates for either side devoted to their position, willing to sacrifice blood and treasure for their view. And yet, Marx himself might not have recognized, let alone endorsed, the regimes that cited him as their hero, just as he probably would not have recognized his writings in the views of his critics. If I know one thing about myself, he is reported to have said, it is that I am not a Marxist. His supporters today will point to the distance between Marx's ideas and the use and misuse to which he was put by future politicians. Critics will point to the things Marx got wrong, where his philosophy morphed into an ideology and an ideology morphed into a call to arms. But there's no denying his power. Reading Marx's Communist Manifesto, even today, says one commentator, is like holding a bomb in your hands. How did he do it? Through words. Through words. He was a bit of an organizer. He was recognized by his peers as a natural leader. He was not cowardly, but he was at heart and by training a philosopher. Famously, he said that the point of philosophy was to take action. In his quote, it was, The philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. But changing the world for him was not him personally taking up arms and leading an armed revolt. It was to write, persuasively, to find undeniable truths. His goal was liberation, human freedom, to expose truths about the conditions that workers found themselves in and the forces that created that world. But his primary means to that goal was through his pen. His idea was that by showing the truth by clearing away myths and all the things that prevented people from seeing the truth, he would be performing a service and making the world a better place. Good things would flow from that clearing away, that honesty. What good things? Sometimes he would specify and sometimes he wouldn't. He had a view that was almost certainly correct, which was that the ending could not be prescribed. If capitalism ended and a new society arose, it would have to arise organically and be appropriate for those conditions and the people at that time. It could not be imposed by a government or a party or a leader. He was wary of those leaders, those heroes on horseback, as he put it. In other ways, he was prescriptive, at least in the sense that he described what would need to be done to change the economic conditions in a meaningful way. Private property would need to be abolished. In that sense, he was dramatic and ruthless. Improving conditions of workers, let's say a law that would prohibit child labor or set a cap on the working week or a minimum wage law, changes like that, while he acknowledged they were good things, were just a salve, just a way station on the road to the inevitable. They would not be enough and could never be enough. So, Marx often reads like a prescription— Private property will be abolished. Well, who's going to abolish it? Someone who's urging humanity forward on this path. The path that is inevitable. Does that make sense? If it's inevitable, why does anyone need to push it forward? 
It's a tension that Marks never fully resolved. And maybe the reason why he didn't was because it was fundamentally at odds with what he really wanted to do, which was to change the world through words, which is in the end what he did do in a major, major way. We're not going to dive too deeply into his politics here, either his politics or the politics of those who came after. There was a lot of his thinking to argue about. He wrote a lot, and his friend Engels edited a lot after Marx's death, and Marx changed his mind sometimes, and he contradicted himself, and there was a lot there for political philosophers to argue about and try to understand. Instead, we are going to look at Marx's role in literature in two ways. First, as the author of the Communist Manifesto, probably the most successful manifesto of all time and maybe the best written. It's a dynamic piece of writing. You can see Marx's literary background in it, his early desire to write poetry, his training as a journalist, his knack for coining a perfect phrase, his genius with metaphor. We'll look at those literary devices and a few from some of his other writing as we take a brief glimpse at Marx's biography. And then we'll look at another development, Marxist literary theory. We'll have our old friend Mike Palindrome on to discuss his forays into Marxist literary theory. And while he's here, we'll ask him about some of his other forays into literary theory. Literary theory is not something we talk about much here at the History of Literature, but it's part of the history of literature, to be sure. It deserves a bit of time here, even if other programs, no doubt, can go much deeper than I would ever want to. Anyway, I like the angle we take today. Mike is the president of the Literature Supporters Club. He's not an English professor out there fighting for one theory or another. I'm not either, although I'm married to one. Although, she has set aside her weaponry now. More of a lover than a fighter, I guess you'd say. <laughs> That's probably more than you want to hear, or anyway, more than I should probably say. Where were we? Ah, yes, our schedule. That's what I have in mind. That's the specter that's haunting our show. We'll animate the specter after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Karl Marx's parents were Jewish, but history got in their way. His grandfathers on both sides were rabbis. His father, whose name was then Herschel Levy, received a secular education with a particular interest in philosophers like Kant and Voltaire. Herschel qualified as a lawyer in 1814, and then, just a year later, Napoleon lost at Waterloo, and the Rhineland where he lived changed hands from the liberal French administration to the more conservative Kingdom of Prussia, where it was illegal for Jews to occupy legal positions. So Herschel changed his name from Herschel Levy to Heinrich Marx, converted also to the state religion, Lutheranism, and went about his practice. This is the world and the life that Karl Marx was born into. One might think that this would have made the father tolerant toward the son. Instead, things kind of went the other way, and his father was hard on him, perhaps because he knew how fickle fate could be, and how resourceful one would need to be in order to survive it. He sent the teenaged Karl to study law at the University of Bonn. Marx himself wanted to study philosophy and literature. After he got into some scrapes, 
including a duel that left a wound above his eye for the rest of his life, Carl's father insisted that Carl move to the more serious University of Berlin. Once there, Carl was still getting into trouble. He was in love now with a woman named Jenny, who was later to be his wife and lifelong love. His father wrote him an angry letter when Marx was 19. Quote, Alas, your conduct has consisted merely in disorder, meandering in all the fields of knowledge, musty traditions by somber lamplight, degeneration in a learned dressing gown with uncombed hair has replaced degeneration with a beer glass, and a shirking unsociability and a refusal of all conventions and even all respect for your father. Your intercourse with the world is limited to your sordid room, where perhaps lie abandoned in the classical disorder the love letters of a jenny and the tear-stained counsels of your father. And do you think that here in this workshop of senseless and aimless learning you can ripen the fruits to bring you and your loved one happiness? End quote. Marx's mother also wrote to him she was more concerned about his health. She'd lost a son already to tuberculosis. She wrote, quote, You must never regard cleanliness and order as something secondary, for health and cheerfulness depend upon them. Insist strictly that your rooms are scrubbed frequently and fix a definite time for it. And you, my dear Carl, have a weekly scrub with sponge and soap. <laughs> End quote. After Carl wrote a letter, Acknowledging that his lifestyle had affected his health, his mother <laughs> went into a frenzy and wrote, quote, You must avoid everything that could make things worse. You must not get overheated, not drink a lot of wine or coffee, and not eat anything pungent, a lot of pepper or other spices. You must not smoke any tobacco, not stay up too late in the evening, and always rise early. Be careful also not to catch cold, and dear Carl, do not dance until you are quite well again. End quote. But Carl was dancing. He was staying up late. He was drinking coffee and smoking. One suspects he was eating food with pepper. We know he was writing love poetry to Jenny in these years, and he was immersed in philosophy. He joined a group that was known as the Young Hegelians, who sought to understand and argue about and advance the ideas of the recently deceased philosopher Hegel, whose writings dominated the German intellectual class for his generation and several generations afterwards. Hegel believed that history was being guided by a pair of forces, reason and freedom, and that there was a spirit that pushed toward freedom. When obstacles got in its way, they were overcome. But through this overcoming, progress could be made. All the tensions of the world, like self versus other, knowledge versus faith, mind versus nature, and so on, were part of a comprehensive, revolving, rational unity. Negation of one idea gave it a dynamism, which it worked through until reaching a new reality, a new step on the path of progress. The young Hegelians took this up. It was a fantastic idea, but to what could this mechanism be applied? Where were these struggles, and what did they mean? One of the early followers of Hegel, Feuerbach, said, let's take a look at religion. In his work, The Essence of Christianity, he argues that God is human, He's created by, he's a human creation. He's created by humans. He's made by humans in their image. And then the humans say that they themselves remain in God's image. The book was influential, no less a figure than Marianne Evans, whom we know better as the author George Eliot translated it into English. Marx was struck by this book. He wrote his own little masterwork, Theses on Feuerbach, to think through the impact of Feuerbach on his and others' understanding. This was not published during Marx's lifetime, but it became one of his most famous works. This is where we find the phrase about philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways, and the point, however, is to change it. Can we just pause here to admire the incisiveness of Marx's pen? He's Voltaire, he's Mark Twain, he's Oscar Wilde. He's in that category. He's that witty, that brilliant. He's like Nietzsche. I'm just talking about the prose style here. 
comparisons and metaphors, the way he can turn a phrase and make things clear or seem to be clear. He's not always. Certain works are hard to read. But <laughs> when he's at his best, he's playful and fun, and he seems like he's summoning forth great truths and delivering them to us in a way we have not thought of before. He calls Napoleon III a grotesque mediocrity and a ludicrous, vulgar, and hated person. <laughs> the bourgeois order, quote, has become a vampire that sucks the blood from the peasants' hearts and brains and casts them into the, cauld the alchemist cauldron of capital. He says, history repeats itself, first as tragedy, second as farce. And workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. Okay, enough with the pros, with the examples. Let's go back to Marx and Feuerbach. The main thing Marx credited Feuerbach with was developing the idea of historical materialism, though he thought Feuerbach didn't go far enough. Historical materialism was the idea that economic struggle between rulers and the oppressed was the driving force of history. As I mentioned to Mike in our conversation later on, Marx says, quote, I found philosophy on its head and put it on its feet, end quote. In other words, it was abstract and isolated. It was about the search for freedom and the search for the essence of man, but in a kind of abstract sense. Man's achievement, his goal, was to find perfect understanding, the culmination of rational thought and self-awareness. Marx made it real. Marx applied it to real life. He said, you can't understand human essence unless you understand the kind of economic forces that are affecting people's lives. People aren't free to be free. They're subject to forces. They're, there are masters and there are slaves. There are factory owners and factory workers. They cannot escape these systems. And the systems themselves govern the freedom that they can possess. And in this area, he was assisted by his lifelong friend, Friedrich Engels. The two met once, and it didn't go well. The second time they met, they hit it off famously and spent ten days together, talking day and night. Engels believed Marx was the cleverer of the two, but Engels was good enough and smart enough and his ideas were close enough to Marx's that Marx trusted him. And Engels had something Marx didn't have, practical, up-close experience. Engels came from a manufacturing family, including a factory that his family owned in Manchester, the heart of the industrialized world. Engels could tell Marx exactly what was happening to the workers, both in the factory and outside of it. He could make concrete the world that Marx was trying to understand and describe. After university, Marx became a journalist, a very successful one, recognized immediately for the force of his style. His love for poetry and literature helped him here as his prose became powerful. He edited one newspaper or journal after another, while still writing his philosophy, hoping to be taken on as a philosopher. He was married now. He had mouths to feed. Engels floated him money to keep the whole project afloat. Somewhat ironically, it was the fruits of the bourgeois factory-owning lifestyle that paid for the greatest voice the proletariat would ever know. Thanks to Marx's journalism, he was kicked out of a few cities, viewed by the governments as dangerous, an agitator, and then he went to Paris, the homeland of revolution. The city had become a gathering ground for socialists and utopians and communists, and there, in 1848... At the age of 30, Marx wrote the work that forever made his name, The Communist Manifesto. The Communist Manifesto starts with one of the most famous lines in all of literature. A specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exorcise this specter. Other lines ring out as well. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles, for example. Marx runs through previous socioeconomic systems, feudalism and others, and talks about how they end in revolution that restructures society. This will happen to capitalism too, he says. The bourgeoisie, or ownership class, will constantly exploit the proletarian workers for their labor power creating profit for themselves, but eventually reaching too far. 
The system will not hold. The tension will be too great. The proletariat will be pushed beyond the breaking point. The bourgeoisie, he says, will become their own grave diggers. As the proletariat become conscious of their potential, they will rise to power through revolution, overthrowing the bourgeoisie. The 30-page description of history and current conditions ends with a sentence in all caps, Workers of the World, Unite. Marx went on to write other works. His book Das Kapital, which he never finished, was a rich source for his followers. He was kicked out of Paris and moved to London, where he lived the rest of his life, studying at the British Library and trying to find in the reports and research of a bureaucratic industrialized nation the secrets of the economy and its impact on workers. He had a turbulent home life. At one point, he impregnated both his wife and a maid at the same time, which caused what he called a perfect storm, until Engels arrived and claimed that the child born to the maid was his. As always, Engels was there, sending Marx money, guiding him through turmoil, and after his death, overseeing the gathering and publication of his works. The ideas of Marx spread through the 20th century like wildfire, burning down ideas in its path, illuminating dark territory, and filling the skies around the world with smoke. It is perhaps not surprising that Marx's views affected literature, too. Awareness of ideas has a tendency to invade the minds of authors and make their way into their creations. But there was another impact that perhaps wasn't so predictable, Marxist literary theory. Not just the authors of literature, in other words, but those who wrote about literature and those who taught literature students. Terry Eagleton, one of the most famous of these Marxist critics, described Marxist criticism this way, quote, Marxist criticism is not merely a sociology of literature concerned with how novels get published and whether they mention the working class. Its aim is to explain the literary work more fully, and this means a sensitive attention to its forms, styles, and meanings. But it also means grasping these forms, styles, and meanings as the product of a particular history. End quote. Hmm. What can this teach us about literature? How do we even begin to answer this question? Luckily for us, our old friend Mike has spent a lot of time immersed in this stuff. We'll ask him for a report on his findings after this. Okay, joining me now for a discussion of Karl Marx and literature is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike has been immersed in Marx and literature and Marxist readings of literature for the past 20 years or so. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So, do we, I feel like we are going to make a lot of people angry here. It's, I always feel like it's hard to come down on one side or another, everything seems very fraught for people who believe in literary theory passionately or feel like it's misunderstood, misrepresented. Do we need to issue any caveats before we begin? Well, I was going to say I'm a recovering literary theorist. Okay. So the best way to approach literary theory is think of it as a revolving door that you go in Sometimes and you come out. Sometimes you go in, you don't come out. Sometimes you don't go in. <laughs> so it 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 really should be, you know, at your whim, whatever you're in the mood for. Because, and I speak from personal experience. There have been periods in my life where I just love literary literary theory. Mm-hmm. You know, and at other times where I just I I want to like strangle literary theorists. Right. Well, that's why I'm interested to hear your perspective, because I know if you were an academic, uh, I would know why you were interested in literary theory. It could be for to advance your academic career. It, it could also be something that was stemming from your ideology. But you're coming from 
a general reader's perspective. And so if there's something that you gain from reading theory, I'd like to know about it so I can consider whether I should try it myself. Yeah, I mean, you know, being an English major, you start off loving literature. And yep. then the more you hear discussions of literature, it starts to, you know, nag you that perhaps people are showing off. Mm. Mm-hmm you feel more and more removed from the text. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what personally I thought is, well, let's just leave the text. Let's talk about philosophy because people are skating around the issue. They're talking about society and philosophy, but they're trying to tie it to the text. Mm. Well, let's just leave the text entirely and talk about philosophy and the history of criticism and so that's how I, you know, started being interested in literary theory because it just seemed like instead of, you know, pretending that we're reading the text, let's just study the theory itself without the text. Right. Okay. So that that's interesting. That was one of my questions I was going to have for you. So it was less a way for you to feel like it was going to help you understand or talk about or... Maybe that's not the right way to put it, because I do think that literary theory can help unlock certain doors or get you to see literature in a new way. And it can uh, kind of deepen your reading of literature and it can uh, expose you to new ideas connected with literature. But as far as pretending that a a text has a certain meaning and it's like a puzzle to be uh, unencrypted, so to speak, by literary theory... Mm -hmm. That's where I kind of draw the line. And it sounds like you were kind of drawing the line, too. And at that point, you said, well, then let's just let's just go ahead and read the literary theory rather than try to force this literature through that kind of a prism. Yeah, I mean, literary theory, the way I think of it is it makes explicit what you're already doing if you're a close reader. Mm-hmm. But it does make you... It, it gives you concepts and gives you handles mm-hmm. in a way that any philosophy student, you know, you can't study Hegel without studying like Heraclitus. So you mm-hmm. can't study Marx without studying Hegel. So, you know, literary theory gives you these handles and you can you can take it or leave it, like I was saying with the revolving doors. But what I loved about it is that there were certain things that interested me about literature where I felt like there were these, you know, codes. There were like there was a a text and then there was a subtext. Mm-hmm. And people would talk about, well, I think the author's trying to say this. And then someone would say, like, well, I'm not sure if the author meant this. And that's where I felt like literary theory was really useful because there are entire camps who feel like the author there is no author. Right. That once somebody writes something, it's it belongs to a historical period. Mm-hmm. And other people who think like authors are pioneers, they are always resisting the historical period they're in. So there were all these like interesting conversations that literary theory introduced me to. Right. So I kind of feel like, and I I don't mean to disparage literary theory, I'm sort of, uh, you (laughs) know, I was exposed to it as an English major, I enjoyed it. I could give you a lot of examples when I was in graduate school of of people who I think were carried away and were immersed in the theory and uh, had never actually even read some of the works, some of the key works in their period. They they kind of were ignoring literature too much. I'm married to a, an English professor, so I certainly have read a lot of PhD theses. So I'm certainly, yeah, I have learned to live harmoniously with literary <laughs> theory. Uh, but something you just said there, it reminds me sometimes of this thing that a friend of ours said to me once where he's he had kids and he said you know i've realized in looking at in watching my kids and seeing them grow up that everything mm-hmm. in your personality is attributable to birth order and he said <laughs> if you were the oldest or you were the youngest or you're the middle child or you're an only child 
mm-hmm. it forms everything about your personality. Right. And then when I was a parent, I kind of felt that way too, where you watch just the way that siblings interact and you watch the growth of a child and you you think, you, you see how powerful that is. But then when you think about it, and I called out our friend on this because I said, you know, the thing is, sometimes I know people who are younger and that means they're, you know, shy and, and less of an alpha dog. And sometimes I know people who are younger and they are actually stronger than their older sibling. And, you know, what do you what does that do for your theory? And he said, oh, well, see, that's the thing. You know, they're compensating for their birth order. (laughs) And what I realized was you could make it say anything you wanted. It was it, it was powerful and it was there. There was something to it. But it would give it would never be wrong it would always and yeah. but it, you could also never pin it down you know it would always morph and deliver whatever whatever it is you were trying whatever puzzle you were trying to solve and then i i ultimately kind of thought well it's kind of meaningless because what you're really saying is people are complicated and mm-hmm. they will <laughs> use whatever birth order you know for every middle child who's a peacemaker, you'll get a middle child who rejects the role of a peacemaker and is actually striving for attention and is a narcissist. And I kind of feel like literary theory, sometimes I feel like when I hear a description of using literary theory, I kind of feel that way about the theory. Like, oh, well, you can make that say whatever you want it to say. And and you're now you're talking more about the theory than you are about the literature. Literary theory all the different literary 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 theories have branches. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when we talk about Marxist literary criticism, there are people who are really into semiotics, mm. and there are people who are into the history of criticism and the, you know, kind of like class empowerment. Then there are people who are into, you know, the level of linguistics. Mm. and how Marxism informs linguistics. But I I did, I know you asked some questions, I did come up with, I think, a pretty good general description of Marxist literary theory. It's um, all Marxist critics believe that literature is par excellence the perfect incubator for analyzing historical social types. Mm that literature as opposed to say journalism or nonfiction is able to consciously as well as subconsciously reveal the way the world works. Mm. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So does that, I mean, I know Marx was a big fan of literature and he cited it, but he also immersed himself in the details of the world, in statistical reports and the things he found in the British Library. I heard a great quote where he said, I found philosophy standing on its head, and I set it on its feet. <laughs> and by standing on its head, he meant Hegel. And by setting it on its feet, he meant he made it more grounded in reality, that it wasn't just theoretical. It was based on you know, charts and graphs and and all of the reports that he was able to find of child labor and and things like that. Yeah, so I think some people think Marxist literary criticism is literally just like find the class struggle, Mm -hmm. you know, find a book that advocates, you know, the working class. Whereas a lot of proponents of Marxist literary theory, going back to Bakhtin, they're interested in how literature kind of shows the different sides of class struggle and how an author may not even be aware of it. Like someone, so not to bring up Thomas Mann, but um, (laughs) his literature is cited by many Marxists as being incredibly subversive because Mm. you don't get this dogma and because of that, you get this full picture of the world, which kind of, you know, magically reveals the underclass and the struggle. Whereas someone like Emile Zola, 
who is so dogmatic and he's kind of like saying like, oh, these are the people who are oppressed. It's off-putting. And so that's one branch of Marxist literary theory I love, which is the nuance and subtlety, which is against that dogma that you're not going to win people over by beating them over the head. You're going to win people over by showing them something beautiful. Yeah. But doesn't Marx also say that art and literature has basically always been in place to preserve the status quo and uh, basically make it possible for, in his view, the bourgeoisie to maintain its grip on power? Yeah, so there, there are theorists today like um, Zizek, who said, he, I mean, he's a Slovani, Slovenian philosopher, Marxist, who says that the whole idea, and he's guilty of it too, he said, the whole idea of any kind of activity that is short of throwing bricks through a window is bourgeois. Yeah. He he says like all these like eco protests, right? These protests against Brett Kavanaugh, it actually takes away from the energy you might have to do something that actually has an impact. Yeah. So he's very he's very aware that it can be masturbatory. Yeah. This whole idea that like, you know, let's analyze literature or art to show how subversive it is, but it's actually very, very, you know, bourgeois. It's very, you know, very status quo. I mean, that's the argument against a theory like deconstruction, that deconstruction is actually totalitarian because you're so busy deconstructing works that you're not doing anything progressive. (laughs) You're sitting at home, like, you know, analyzing the signifier and signified and you're not doing anything. So yeah. Zizek, yeah, Zizek's essays, I really recommend those. Um, he has some hilarious essays about the level of donations that went down when there were parades in favor of something. Right. So there were all these parades protesting Trump and all these donations to Democratic candidates running for congressional seats went down. Yeah. Because people felt like good about themselves, like, "Hey, I'm I'm going to take part in a parade," right? And so. that's still with us. And I think that goes back to Marx, right? Where it it's the idea that there are certain things, like maybe giving to charity, or there's things that actually don't really change the system as much as people think, but they're mainly there to make people feel like they're altruistic. And in fact, to uh, help people in who are in power feel better about the wealth that they have. Yeah, so it, it, that's a big tension in Marxist criticism today. And you're seeing these theorists, these new theorists like Daniel Graeber or Benjamin Kunkel, who are focused on Marx, but also in changing the world. Hmm. And they're trying to reach a popular audience because, you know, they're Marxist critics who are incredibly erudite, but pretentious and really hard to read. There's a professor at Duke, Frederick Jameson, and he's actually, I think I mentioned this in a prior podcast, he's won twice the most ridiculous (laughs) academic sentence of the year award. Okay, now let me... (laughs) Let me frame this question in a different way. Let me frame this topic in a different way. I can hear what you're saying here. You seem to be saying that if you were a Marxist, you'd be writing something that the workers could understand because you're you're sort of, I mean, Marx was addressing the proletariat, right? That encouraging them to revolt. On the other hand, knowing you, Mike, I would think that you would view that as sort of a challenge to yourself and that you would maybe be drawn to that more than you would be to someone who is uh, writing in simpler prose. So where do you stand on Mr. Jameson? I I really enjoy reading him. Yeah. <laughs> I, have to say. I, I, I own four of his books, but I, I fully I recognize that he's a tenured professor at Duke. 
right. which is an elite university. Yep. He loves his bourgeois comforts. Mm-hmm. And I have a friend who actually was in grad school with him, with Frederick Jameson, and he called him Fred. And he said that he has a very nice summer house. Yeah. Well, well and Mark's, he, you know, paid for his daughters to take dancing <laughs> lessons. And I mean, he did actually kind of, he was fine with himself living in poverty and squalor, from what I understand. But he he didn't want his daughters to suffer, which is, that's understandable too. It's something I struggle with because when you're a kid and you're idealistic, you know, you, you want the world to be a better place. But then as you age, you realize that the world can't be fixed, certainly not by one person. And, you know, you're carving out a space where you can live a comfortable life. You know, it, it becomes this paradox that, you know, you believe in the class struggle, but you're not willing to go all the way. Hmm. You want to like order in sushi and, you know, go to Europe and, you know, (laughs) (laughs) so, but it's, I mean, I guess even a watered down version of Marxist theory is better than nothing. Well, which did you read first? Marx's writings or Marxist literary theory? I must have read parts of Das Kapital. Hmm. I actually read not literary theory first, but I read Lenin. Hmm. And and this is something I, I wanted to talk about, which is it's so different, the reception of Marx in Europe versus the U.S. Hmm. In the U.S., I feel like um, communism, socialism, and Stalin are all grouped together. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the Cold War. Yeah. And, and totalitarianism. So, oh my God. It's it's it's, yeah. it's kind of insane that Stalin is grouped with Lenin because Lenin was an intellectual and his writings are incredible. Yeah. And if you go to Europe, you know, socialism has nothing to do with communism. Right. And Marx is considered like Plato. Yeah. You know, like you could do what you want with Plato, but you certainly wouldn't associate him with like Stalin. You wouldn't associate Plato with, you know, like a pedophile. I mean, you you know, it's it's just. And when you when you read Marx, I mean, he really was he was a humanist and he was he really was in favor of human freedom. And he seemed like his he saw as his number one goal was to just wipe away illusions and to to yeah. show people the truth about things and to to let people see things for what they really were and to recognize kind of the large invisible forces that were pushing people around and leading to things like I mean I read when when Marx was was writing the average work week in Manchester was 84 hours. Oof. And Boy. that's the kind of thing that Marx, where Marx would stand up and say, there's a reason why this is happening. And yeah. it's not just that people want to work 84 hours a, you know, a week. This is, this is an outcome that's being determined by some of these forces that are in place here. And that instinct of Marx and, and that... Uh, belief that it was important to focus on these things is very different from uh, what ended up being used by politicians of Marx and what was done sort of in his name. Although Marx has a bit of responsibility for it, I think, because he did kind of, you know, the point of philosophy is to change the world. And part of him did want to get out there and, and stir things up and make change. There, there's, you know, there are various Marxes. There's an extreme Marx. There's the Hegelian, like a historical Marx. There's the humanist Marx. I mean, some of his concepts are so enlightening. I mean, he was talking about happiness um, and how if you are alienated from the thing you produce, then you won't be as happy and proud. 
Right. He talks about like labor and happiness and satisfaction that foreshadowing everyone who is like an entrepreneur or do it yourself or Mm -hmm. someone who works with their hands. I mean, he says the, the, the further you're removed from the product you make, you know, the harder it is to be happy. Yeah. You know, and there's stuff like that. That's like so humanist. I mean, it's, it's, so I, I mean, I've gone back to Marx and I've gravitated toward Marxist theorists who have like a very, very specific focus. So Daniel Graeber, who's a economist, he's a Marxist at the University of London. He wrote this incredible book I recommend. It's called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Mm. And just, it's, a, it's this Marxist humanist take on debt and poverty and it's sprinkled throughout our Marxist uh, principles but what really drives it is this idea that things are not right today Mm. and you know what can we do what can we actually do yeah so and then he throws in like very funny he's 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 a funny writer he says like the bible actually has references to a debt forgiveness day every i forget like every nine years and he was saying that there are some libertarian economists who actually believe in that we should wipe clean everybody's debt every 15 years right that if you can't (laughs) if you can't get your money back in 15 years you should have pity on the debtor and just wipe it clean which I, I thought was, and, it, and Graeber says that we can do the same thing they did in the Bible, which is have a jubilee, have a big global party. Yeah. <laughs> but see, that's, that's where I hear that. And I, I think I feel the same way I do when I read Marx and I read, you know, where he will sort of say everyone will be able to do what they want all day long. And I think it sounds like kind of a recipe for disaster who's going to who's going to be the garbage collector i think marx never figured this out and i certainly haven't mm-hmm. you know i read adam smith and i read the pin factory and i get all excited because i think yes this is this is the way things should go i don't want an individual to sit down and make a pin and spend two weeks making one pin for me and having to spend, you know, $100 on a pin when you can divide up the labor and, and you know, mechanize the means of production and do all these things that you would do in order for us to have pins that are so cheap we don't even think about it. But on the other hand, I do recognize I wouldn't want to be working in the pin factory, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and yeah. I, reckon, I, I, re- I see things in Marx when I read Marx and I just think, yeah, I mean, what is freedom if you're working 84 hours a week? That's not freedom at all. And it yeah. is kind of a disguised freedom to say, oh, well, people are, they're not slaves. They get to choose what job they want. But if there is no job or if, if you have to work, you know, three jobs to just pay the bills, uh, you're not free. You know, but Marx recognized that capitalism produced all this bounty. And that that was a good thing, that it was impressive what it could build. I think he just also worried about the effects on people. But I I don't know that he Mm -hmm. solved that riddle in the way that he thought that communists solved it. Yeah, I think and going back to reading literature with this Marxist lens, Mm -hmm. it's this recognition that we haven't figured it out. Mm hmm. And I think that's the mistake a, a lot of people make when they think of like feminist literary theory or Marxist literary theory. They think that all you're doing is looking for feminist issues or class issues. And in fact, you're searching for a way to almost like subvert a dogmatic reading. Right. So it's, it's actually the dogma helps you become more subtle because you're you become very aware of it like when when i read a book where there's an upstart and a do-gooder who's working class and he makes good and succeeds the marxist reading of that is that this is 
a placebo. This is a delusion right. to help people think that this is possible. Literary theory makes you hyper aware of bad fiction. In what way? It's just not subtle. Oh, that's you know? the, yeah, right, right. Yeah. That it's it's too obvious and too transparent. Yeah, I mean, and so that was one of Marx's big things is masking a mask that, you know, behind the mask is the truth. And something like deconstruction is behind the mask. The truth is always constituted by other masks hmm. to infinite regression, that there's always a mask. And so, I mean, you know, we can do another episode on deconstruction, but that, I mean, that's an example of how it becomes so purely theoretical, but, you know, without going there, you can think, well, what, who, what are the delusions in this, in this work of literature like what what is the author purporting to say and is that the, really the way the world works or is that just like this this dream that they're hoping that we buy well i have to say i don't want to i don't want to disparage the field here but that's how i read literature <laughs> I mean, why do you need literary theory in order to read literature that way? So let me ask you this as we sort of wrap this up here. Uh -huh. And this is, you know, I I have a feeling that people who are really into literary theory will be all over, especially the things that I've said is, is not really getting it or not really knowing enough in order to say anything either critical or in praise of it. But if we're talking to a general reader... And we're talking about the world of Karl Marx and Marxist literary theory and maybe extending to literary theory in general. What advice do we give them? Are there particular books that you would say that every fan of literature should read? I would certainly say that the Communist Manifesto as being 30 pages is just a, a really, if people haven't read that, it's worth reading. It's, it's kind of beautifully written. It will make you think you will find things in it that you agree with and find things in it that you disagree with, but it will be it will engage you as you read it. Are there other works of literary theory that you would say the same thing about? So I have many recommendations. Okay. But I I <laughs> just came up with two slim volumes. Okay. So that people can, you know, either finish it or toss it. Yep. Um, so the first is Mythologies by Roland mm, Barthes. Yep. Okay. That's um, a so great he, choice. So he was a Marxist, He, but he was very, very interested in structuralism and semiotics. And Mythologies is a, a series of vignettes where he kind of breaks down advertising or yep. different social phenomena to show that it's not what you see on the surface, but there is actually some kind of inner working. So what I explained to my daughter, who's 13, is that, you know, when you see an advertisement to join the military, and say a French advertisement, and it has the flag, which signifies, you know, the country, and a military uniform, which signifies the military, but what the French started to do is instead of having a white French person, they had a black French person. Mm. And this started around the time of the Algerian conflict. And it was very strategic. The idea is that you can be part of the military too, even if you're, you're black. So I was, I was telling my daughter that, you know, that that's the way semiotics works is that signs exist to be manipulated mm -hmm. and mythologies is it, it, it's just a fun read there's there's something on fake wrestling you know and <laughs> it, it it's just he he's he's so good at jumping from things that you know thing to thing and then just kind of zooming in to to discuss what's fascinating and yeah what I like about that is it's just, it's the kind of book you read and then you start noticing things yourself when you, you know, when you walk out the door and, and just start walking around in the world, you start seeing things in a different way and you start noticing things. It's not like you're just getting his lessons. It's like you're, you're opening yourself up to think in a different way or to 
experience things in a different way and think through things in a different way. And then you can apply that back to literature the next time you read literature. So I think that's a great pick. And the other book is, it's kind of an unwieldy title, but it's uh, The Postmodern Condition, A Report on Knowledge by uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, who talks about basically literary theories, meta-narratives, meta grand yeah. narratives, and why they're bad. And so it's it's this literary theory book that attacks literary theory. Okay. Well, that sounds like an interesting read. I haven't read that. I am a little bit astounded that you chose two books, and one of them was not by V.A. Prop. <laughs> I thought he was your guy, the guy who wrote about fairy tales and diagrammed yeah. them all and turned them all into formulas where, you know, yeah. the... Uh, the the call for help was described as one symbol and, and all of that that that's not uh that's not one of your top two well i mean yeah, i try to come up with stuff that you know would give more of a a flavor yeah. of literary theory because yeah I he might not pop, be the but... right gateway drug yeah yeah <laughs> and the other one i i i throw the gauntlet down to listeners if if you if they want to, is to read Of Grammatology by Jacques mm. Derrida. Yeah. Which is probably, I think, if I can say this, in 500 years, it's going to be read. <laughs> it's it's just, I mean, I read it twice, and each time I was, I mean, I felt like my mind just expanded. <laughs> I could feel like, I. there were moments where I just got it, and I, I just wanted to, I felt euphoric. Okay, yeah, so it's it's a puzzle. So so let's go back five hundred years from today. <laughs> so we're talking yeah. what fifteen eighteen, right? Uh, this is before Speaking Shakespeare. Yeah. What Dante. what has lasted? Okay, so there's Dante, there's Chaucer, Montaigne, right? <laughs> I uh, oh, is that later? I think that was later. So <laughs> you're you're saying that Derrida, yeah, is in that category. Yeah, one of the what two or three books of the, a stretch of two hundred years that's going to make it. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And in the meantime, we'll all just ignore them. It'll be like uh, climate change. People will look back and say, how could you not have spent your life reading Derrida? I read a little bit in college, read enough to know that he was not for me, and kind of disapproved of his whole project, uh, mm -hmm. even though, I, I mean, I think he's a smart guy. But uh, I kind of felt like, ultimately, if I went down that path, it was going to be less about the literature and more about the theorist. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I yeah, the, 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 there are other books that are far more readable and as fun um, in terms of puzzles. It, I, I would recommend like Edward Sapir and Benjamin Worf in terms of like linguistic games. Yeah, those are really fun, and and it and. That's on the level of language, which I think anybody who loves literature can appreciate. I mean, if you read Worf or Sapir and then you read Beckett, you you start to see things. You start to see like what Beckett is trying to do. Yeah. You know, and trying to, you know, what Ezra Pound said, which is to make it new, to make a word new and to make it mean something else. Right. And you maybe know? maybe this is the way to conclude here because I was thinking of this when you first started talking, which is when I read Plato, I mean, I love Plato and I love a lot of the dialogues, but the ones that get me the most excited and interested are the ones that are about the things that matter to me. What it sounds like you've done is to basically say your mind, your brain was ready for some philosophy. You wanted to exercise those muscles. And what you found was here were some very deep thinkers who also happened to be talking about something that you loved, which was literature. And so it was literature was like kind of a, 
a common ground or a, a thread that was able to you were able to follow through as you enjoyed these philosophers because they were taking on a subject that you were also interested in. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree with that, and I, I you know several decades removed from college, I find myself gravitating toward literary theorists who write kind of small, like mm. George George Lukash or Terry Eagleton. You know, they write these short essays, short chapters, yeah. and you get so much out of them. Yeah, and they'll maybe take on a, a couple of texts or a, a, a very limited idea and just yeah. explore it. But then I, I, I do like reading like techno jargon, like Althusser <laughs> has this essay called Ideology and Ideological State Apparatuses that I try to read once a year. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I think I'm going to have to ask you to send me a list of these recommendations and we'll put them all in the show notes and people can uh, <laughs> explore them at their leisure. Mike, as always, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Karl Marx for not sticking to poetry, but for trying something else, which gave us an interesting idea for a show. <laughs> Good Lord. Imagine if that were his only legacy. And my thanks to our old friend Mike Palindrome, El Presidente, for joining us as well. Mike and I have some F. Scott Fitzgerald coming up. I gave him a choice of stories. Bernice Bob's Her Hair, The Offshore Pirate, Babylon Revisited, or The Diamond as Big as the Ritz. We'll hear which story he chose, and we'll talk about that. Learn more about the show at historyofliterature.com and jackwilson.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com. If you'd like to support the show, maybe you're inspired by our man Engels. You could be the Engels here. The Engels and the Angels. Just head on over to patreon.com slash literature or historyofliterature.com slash shop and find out how to do it. You can pay monthly, a bit here and there, or a lump sum in what we call a virtual coffee. You will be our guardian angles. My thanks to all of our current guardian angles or angels who have signed up already. And we're getting ready for Halloween. I think we'll have two Halloween episodes this year. Our autumn bounty continues. A cornucopia of hobgoblins and... Uh, and odd goblins. Globs of goblins. How about that? So sign up now. You won't want to miss them. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>